patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone, and welcome to episode 90 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski. Thank you all so much for joining me for this interview episode. First of all, a special thank you to our Patreon supporters. As always, you are absolutely incredible. You have dedicated so much of your time and of your generosity to supporting this podcast, and I just really want to extend my sincere appreciation to all of you. As a kind reminder, make sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, to subscribe to our email list as well if you want to get some more notifications and news, new episodes that come out. Also, I hope that you are looking forward to the summer holidays as the holidays roll around pretty soon. I guess Memorial Day is sort of a de facto start of the summer holiday season. Whether you're traveling, whether you're staying at home, Hope you have a relaxing few months and enjoy the amazing weather, hopefully, wherever you are going or wherever you are. This week's episode will feature another special guest, one who has an impressive, and I mean impressive, background on state and local government and policymaking. She is a remarkable and very knowledgeable person. I'm really, really excited to introduce her. Kristen Strobel has been a state and local government affairs professional for the past 15 years and recently worked at a multi-client bipartisan lobbying firm. She has used her many years of state government experience to assist clients in areas as diverse as executive policy, legislative debates, and regulatory issues. She has also led outreach to multi-state policy organizations such as the National Governors Association, the National Association of Attorneys General, and the National Conference of State Legislatures, as well as political organizations state government leaders rely on to advance their priorities. Kristen once served as the Director of State Government Affairs for the Entertainment Software Association, where she focused on issues critical to the technology sector, including STEM education, privacy, e-commerce, intellectual property, and taxation. Previously, Kristen served as Director of State Government Affairs at the National Association of Professional Employer Organizations, all NAPIO, responding to legislative and regulatory developments to improve the regulatory climate for members. She also represented NAPIO at hearings, meetings, and conferences as the official voice of the industry on state government affairs issues. Prior to joining APO, Kristen served as a policy director for the Attorney General of Ohio, Mike DeWine, who is actually the current governor of Ohio as of the release of this episode. She testified for the Office on Legislative Initiatives before the Ohio State Legislature and collaborated with Border State Attorneys General and their legislatures on policy initiatives. She also served as senior advisor on special task forces and policy subcommittees for the Ohio Attorney General. She is a native of Ohio, and she graduated from Ohio University in 2007, receiving a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with a minor in Geography. She achieved her Master of Arts degree in Political Science, specifically American Politics, in 2008. She previously served 
as the co-chair of the Women in Government Relations, WGR's Tech, Telecom, and IP Task Force, and currently serves as an ambassador on the Youth Leaders Council, where she advises their team on state legislative policies and engagement. She was also a 2016 James Madison's Montpelier's Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution's Emerging Millennial Fellow. In 2021, Kristen was named one of the Advocacy Association's Top 21 Advocacy Practitioners in 2021 and was a featured speaker at the American Association of Political Consultants 2021 Policy Conference. As you can tell with the bio, she is incredibly active and very, very experienced. I really am so excited to speak with her today. And now I'd like to welcome Kristen on to our program. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on to Friends of Fellow Citizens today. Thank you for having me, Sherman. I'm excited. Well, first of all, I want to thank you so much for coming on our program. As, as corresponding with you earlier, um, you have a very busy schedule given the kinds of work that you're doing. So I'm, from the bottom of my heart, really, really thank you so much for taking some time today um, and to share a little bit about your knowledge and experience with our listeners. And I guess that's where I want to kind of start here, which is uh, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in politics or policymaking um, and why why you feel that this field of and politics, specifically like state government and and local government affairs, is so important to you and your career? I think that's a good question. For some young people, they have no idea what they want to do for their career or later in life. I was someone that at an incredibly young age, like six years old, I was always interested in politics, the electoral process. I didn't really know exactly what that looked like or if my career would end up uh, along those lines. But it did. And I'm very thankful. I'm someone that always loved social studies and history classes. And I was intrigued and encouraged by the fact that when I toured my campus, Ohio University, as an incoming freshman, there were not a lot of uh, women involved in the political science program. And I found that to be a challenge. And so I was always had this energy um, and, and I was drawn to public policy and the electoral process, public service, since I was young. So it was something that was an easy thing for me to decide when I was going to college and ultimately to graduate school that I wanted to study political science and I wanted to have a career in public service. Uh, like most people, though, I didn't think at, in college that I was necessarily going to be a lobbyist or a government affairs professional, if we want to make it sound nicer. But I knew that there was something that I wanted to do to impact policy and to give back. And when I, I distinctly remember there was a presenter that came into my graduate class because I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do when I left. I knew I wanted to be involved in public policy. And someone came in to speak about a fellowship program with the state of Ohio. And one window open, another door open, everything just catapulted to one opportunity to the next. And I had the pleasure of really learning my skill set at the state and local level. My first job after the fellowship was with the Ohio Senate. And I ended up working for now Governor Mike DeWine when he was the attorney general of the state. And each experience I had built on the previous one. But what kept me continuously motivated was the fact that I was impacting policy at the state and local level interacting with actual constituents where these changes were going to 
impact them far more than anything that was being debated at the federal level. And also the engagement opportunity, because in state and local politics, there are so many ways in which people can actually vocalize their support or dislike for something that's going on, whether that's through public testimony, a referendum, um, any other checks and balance of the government, the local level really has the opportunity and presents itself for people to get engaged. So that was always really exciting to me. And while I started my career in Ohio, I have for about the last 10 years been doing what we call multi-state lobbying. And that allows me to travel across the country, but also to engage with state and local governments in all 50 states. And that in itself is super interesting because no one state, no one government is the same. So it's been something that, like I said, is built over time, but I've loved the really grassroots part of it where you can engage with people, constituents at a local level. First of all, that's so wonderful to hear, especially about your passion about this area. And I feel like nowadays we we certainly don't talk enough about state and local governments because as you said, that really is that kind of grassroots, uh, ground level sort of policymaking. Um, and I've, I've imagined that you're getting a lot of frequent flyer miles as you as you travel all <laughs> around. And um, I, I thought my frequent flyer mile uh, cumulative number was pretty high until today. Um, what what are some of the challenges of navigating with all those different state governments? Is it kind of like navigating different cultures and just different ways that people do things? Um, is there something a bit deeper about why what distinguishes state governments, not just based on the constitutions, right, but just like just how uh, what how their mo kind of works, really? Well, you know, in our our federal government's layered like a cake, right? We've got the federal government the state, and then down to the local. And every single jurisdiction is different, which makes the uniqueness very enticing for someone like me, but also challenging. So there are similarities that you could see regionally. But even if you look at, for example, the state of Ohio, the urban areas, primarily during the electoral process, lean very democratic, but all of the rural areas are very red in the state. And that is, a, you know, a small geographically small state, even though the population is large. And within just that microcosm of one single state, there's so much political diversity. There's diversity in economics, social classes, education, workforce opportunities. So just in that self in one state, that, is, that in itself is very interesting. And then when you go even more granular down to the local level, whether that's through city council or school board, these individuals are making very impactful policy changes. And as a multi-state, multi-client lobbyist, I have the opportunity to engage with them, which is very interesting. But our, our country is incredibly diverse, and that's not just state by state. It really goes down to the local level in which a lot of constituents have a lot of power and influence to their local and state government, which is something that I like to be a part of. Let's go into the COVID-19 pandemic, because we I think the last couple of years or so, we've seen a lot of different areas of policymaking from different states that we might not have known too much about. What can you tell us about how the pandemic defined or affected the role of state governments um, in their different responses, just broadly speaking, um, and maybe how that 
also if how the pandemic also affected their relationships with the federal government in terms of on the pandemic response? I think that's another good question, Sherman. When we look at the pandemic, obviously no one expected this to happen. But I think one of the silver linings that did occur during the pandemic is for some Americans that only thought of the government as Washington, D.C., the White House, federal con- or congressional control, finally saw the, the power and influence that governors and state legislatures in their state had. Governors especially were given very limited time and limited knowledge, right? We were all unaware of what would happen next or the next steps or what impacts this was going to have on the the health of the constituency in their states. And governors were really on the front line to make these decisions. And in a lot of cases, it was found to be controversial. They had mask mandates. They were mandating businesses to close. Some did so in a very egregious manner. Some decided that they wanted to keep their states as open as possible. So that in itself became a very divisive issue across the country of how these governors, who in many cases were implementing executive orders uh, to move forward with either temporary license changes so that more healthcare professionals could provide services that they couldn't otherwise before, uh, to essential business designations where companies uh, that had an essential reason to remain open in the state could, and then one of the things that ended up becoming incredibly controversial, which we all know about, are the, the ongoing mask mandates. Now, most states and the District of Columbia, uh, the latest uh, as of you know March the 1st of this year, have ended that, but we still are dealing with and seeing some mask mandates as, for those of us that are frequent flyers on the planes. And so it's become a, a big issue. And uh, when we look at something like the race for the gubernatorial race for Virginia, where Glenn Youngkin won, one of the main issues during his race was about mass mandates in schools. And so it's interesting that this pandemic has had many trickle-down effects of different policies that governors are making or governor-elects are making um, that will affect their constituency that really the, the pandemic really resonated with constituents and that this hit home because it was affecting their health, their family's health, their potential business or occupation. So this became a really, really important issue to many people. And like our government at the federal level, the state has checks and balances as well. And so A lot of state legislatures wanted to rein back some of the controls that these governors were putting into place. Some of their executive orders were challenged. And one may assume that if you have a legislature of a particular party, that they're going to be aligned with their governor of said, you know, same party. And that's not always the case Um, in Ohio, which I can speak a lot about because I worked there. Governor DeWine, who is a Republican, was consistently challenged by his Republican legislature, and they tried to strip back a lot of his executive orders and controls and powers during the pandemic. Uniquely enough, right over the border in Michigan, Governor Whitmer had the exact same thing happen to her from her Republican legislature, but she herself is a Democrat. So you were seeing all of these challenges, and there were things in California where there were tons of mandates in place. And then 
I've got friends and family that live in South Dakota and Governor Nome there, a Republican, wanted to keep businesses open as much as possible, schools open as much as possible. And many of them have stated that there were only a couple days to weeks in which their kids were not back in school unmasked and businesses remained open. It was very, very, very minor changes that they noticed in their state. So when we look at the diversity of the country and how many of these governors handled this decision-making, no matter what they did, they were always going to get critiqued. Either they're not protective enough of the health of the constituency, or they need to stay out of their constituents way and keep businesses open. So this was, again, I use that word divisive, but this was an incredibly divisive issue across the country, but constituents really were able to see how how much power and influence a governor in their state could have. You know, governors operate as the presidents of their state. They're in charge and they have a, a massive amount of authority. And it wasn't really until uh, a lot of businesses had to close that we noticed that governors somewhat became reliant on the federal government for eventually the CARES Act and ARPA funding to kind of pump back in uh, some money into their economy and get things back open. But even that in itself was challenging for some governors who didn't want to accept federal funds. So uh, it's been, the pandemic has been interesting. It continues to go on. I just saw yesterday that Governor Ducey in Arizona has issued an extension of his executive order for temporary license licenses for um, healthcare and medical professionals. So those that may have maybe have not completed their full license are able to still under his executive order uh, assist people during the pandemic uh, and COVID nineteen era that continues uh, under his executive order. So there's this is not by any means done. And it's ongoing and it's now the responsibility of the legislatures and the governors to decide now how this funding is distributed and, and what what plans or initiatives moving forward are going to best revitalize and revive their states. Well, that's such a super awesome answer because I, I love, love how you really you took obviously the issue of mass mandates and without going obviously into what people think of mass mandates that won't be the main topic here but you really looked at you know the dynamics between local governments and state governments and this kind of begs the question because one of those you mentioned California as a great example there are so I mean it's not just California but there's so many instances I've seen and I kind of want to ask for your thoughts on this which is when a county health official says, no, we want to keep masks on, but then an adjacent county right there, and maybe there's a lot of travel and economic activity between those two counties, or maybe even adjacent counties, but in two different states, like take California, Nevada as an example. I think there's a lot of people who look at the situation and they they just kind of, they're, they're just so confused by the fact that yes, they believe that you know, they should have some more power, maybe on the local side to determine on various different issues. But then at the same time, they're just like, well, I got to wear a mask in this county, but I don't. But if I just walk 10 feet to the next business, I don't have to do that. What sort of challenges are going to arise when we move on from this pandemic and we try to resolve differences in policies from local governments? I think it's been incredibly challenging. I mean, when you look at if if a governor truly wants small government or limited government, we'll give the example of Governor Greg Abbott out of Texas, who's a Republican. He did not want to 
intervene on this issue when we're talking about mass mandates or other business closures. And so he really deferred to the locals. In fact, in his state, his executive order said that the mask, that he would not institute any closures or any mask mandates. He allowed the local governments to make that decision. So when you're talking about going from one county to another in Texas, yes, there could be some county or some local government or even a school board or school system which could have the mandate and then you go once over and it, it's totally different. I mean, we experienced that in Washington, D.C. when our mandates continued to remain in place. You could go over, you had to work out in a mask, but if you went over the Potomac, you could freely work out without a mask or go into the grocery store without a mask in Virginia. And so even just on a borderline, I think it became very confusing to our constituents. And that in itself, I think, made a lot of people irate because if we're really truly following science of what's right or wrong and there's no real direction that's coming or mandate that's coming down from the federal government, these states really had control over what they believed was right, what they believed was the in best health interest. And I think that no one expected it to be so controversial, but this became an issue in which uh, in some cases will, I think, impact the potential re-election or lack thereof of some of these governors based on these really hard decisions that they had to make where no matter what you do, you're going to upset some some portion of your constituency. Some people are always going to be upset with the decisions you make. And I think some governors took upon themselves to, like, again, I can speak to Ohio, Governor DeWine, he hired a medical doctor. A lot of had had a, a COVID czar, uh, surrounded themselves with medical professionals and intellectuals like they did at the federal level in both the Trump administration and in the Biden administration to really rely on following science and what's right. And I think it was a really challenging time to balance the, the, your economic impact of the state while also keeping people safe. So no one anticipated COVID coming but I think we all really underestimated how how controversial this would be and how impactful this would be for better or worse in the states. Yeah, you make an amaz- amazingly important point about the fact that you're going to alienate some people because I feel like a lot of times in this world, there's people who think that they can please everybody. And there's a saying from Aesop that those who try to please everybody, please nobody. But anyway, that's that's a, that's a little phrase in, in, in politics or less in politics, I guess, for, for all of us to, to just so, uh, take in. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit now to schools because there's another element of local government uh, and to some degree state level as well. And that is on education policy, um, really on – there's been a lot of debates about uh, the curricula of various different schools and just you know banning stuff or not banning stuff. Uh, in particular, it's, I think it's really raised the profile of school boards. So tell us a little bit about what your experience has been working with different school boards in general and maybe how the pandemic and the emergence perhaps or the prominence of school boards uh, has – uh, implications on the way we do policymaking at the local and state levels. Well, Sherman, you and I both know the saying that all politics is local. And I think that's been used for 
since Tip O'Neill, a long time, the, the saying has been repeated. And, and it's true. I think, again, a lot of people assume that government's primarily done on Capitol Hill and in the White House, but a lot of political decisions, policy changes are happening at the local level. So like a state legislature, governor, other statewide elected officials, these really local elected officials, whether it's school board, a mayor, city council, they're making tons of changes that are germane to these issues that are popping up at the local level. And they have a lot more power than I think people ever knew or anticipated. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of people, you know, utilized their First Amendment rights and came in and actually for the first time met with school boards, whether it was about critical race theory, whether it was about mask mandates in their schools COVID-19 vaccination requirements, whatever it may be, people really, for the first time, I think, open their eyes up to, wow, school boards have, you know, a lot of uh, power and control and have an impactful um, voice on, on our children. And, and that varies. Um, in, in some states, there were school boards in which were receptive. Others were you know, it was controversial. I refer back to the Glenn Youngkin campaign in Virginia, where obviously the mask mandate issue for children in schools was one of the top issues, but critical race theory also was an issue within his state. Um, and I think, I think again, for the first time, people could really truly see my voice matters. I can go in and testify or vocalize my position and they're going to listen. And now when we're living in the social media world where things are taped or streamed. And that was, again, one of the un- unintended consequences, maybe for the better during the pandemic, as we all had to acclimate to Zoom or Teams or other online streaming services in order to get our content. It really opened our eyes to how reachable government was, especially local. And so I think it's been very, very interesting. A lot of these changes, while unexpected, unanticipated during the pandemic, really made government something that anyone could get involved in. And just a question of largely about the environments that you've been in. You've obviously been to a ton of different environments all around the country, uh, both virtual and in-person environments. Have you seen a change in how people treat one another as human beings at all? Myself, I'm a moderate millennial, so I like to govern or find a consensus in the middle, and maybe I'm an idealist in that matter, uh, but I've always been that way. And I have positions. I'm a fiscal conservative. I, I, I take some some stands on things that I, or I'm very passionate about, but anyone who you would speak to who knows me a little or very well will say that one of the things I always try to do is to find a common ground, find a consensus, whether I'm working on policy, I'm working on an issue. And that goes back to the days in which I was working on the government side of trying to get things passed, but also as a lobbyist in in, in today's society. And that's really hard to do. And one of the things that I found that's been very helpful for me is as our country has become so unrest, so distrustful, of others so disrespectful in some regards to each other is when I am working with someone on an issue on my side or on the other side is I try to get to know them. And that's something that I think not only 
do a lot of Americans lack decorum in the way that they speak to each other or treat each other, but they're, they also know nothing about the other person in which they're, they're working on the issue with or against. And so I always try to learn about the person. If I'm going to go in and meet with a legislator, which there are a lot of state legislators, we have just under 7,400 across the country. If I'm going to go in and meet with one, I really want to know about that person. And most of the time, I'm most effective in my job by building a relationship with them over time. I'm not going to go in and ask something for the first time and say, I'd, I'd like for you to get this done. I may meet with that person eight, nine, 10 times. So by the 10th time that I go in, I can ask them about their daughter and their fishing trip. And we have this relationship that exists. And we have far more in common than we have that's part. And then I'm more effective in getting something done because I've built that foundation with them. And I think that that's what Americans in general are kind of lacking. They're lacking the common ground. They're lacking the ability to laugh with the other person, to get to know them. And so many of these people that we're working for or working against, they, they, they have shared goals as ours. And they also have shared stories and histories that I think once you learn about that, you're going to better understand that person. Uh, You're absolutely right. And I, I just, I want to, congratulate you on just the ability to to make that voice heard or you know to uh, to tell our audience and perhaps to other people you speak with as well about that message of conversing with one another getting to know one another before making a judgment um and i want to now turn a bit to another issue and i guess it kind of ties in a little bit with with the lack of civility which we'll get into a little bit more later in the episode uh, but it's about election integrity uh, because uh, elections can be really, really complicated. It sounds it's in a way it kind of sounds a little easier. Right? It's like, oh, you know, everyone votes and then they tallied up and then they count who who wins, right? Easy. <laughs> I wish I wish civics was that easy. But tell us about how election integrity also became a more prominent issue. Uh, but this get, gets a, very complicated, right? Because there's kind of the the electors, you know, in terms of the presidential election. Uh, but then we're seeing a lot of of different of different people on both sides of the aisle get riled up about how states conduct elections. Um, what can you tell us about just the environment that you're working in right now when it comes to why election integrity all of a sudden is appearing in, on the state level and maybe to some degree county level and and how how that is affecting the relationship between the state and the local governments in terms of how elections are counted by hand by machine or whatever method that uh, that people are using right now. So if you were to pick up any paper across the country, Sherman, or read any publication online, you'd see that redistricting is happening in many different states. So a lot of people may not be aware that that's primarily coming out of state legislatures, but also then the role of the secretaries of state serving as kind of the electoral guard or czar for the states. And not only are they scheduling the dates for primary or general elections, but they're also kind of the auditor of information of all of the election boards, county election boards that are coming into them and ensuring that it's certified and correctly done. I have the unique story of my maternal grandmother was very involved in in politics and I would go vote with her, vote with my parents. And then as young as 16, I worked at a precinct at my high school. So I've been around these you know, elections, these precincts to see how it goes. And it's, it's balanced 
you have people from different political parties, you have judges that are there watching, you have, you know, precinct officials overseeing everything to ensure like they're volunteering their time to be there. They're doing this in the best interest to do this in the cleanest and most upstanding way possible. So I have a hard time hearing about some of the challenges that are going on across the country because everyone that's that I've worked with in a precinct at a county election board, the, the folks that I know that work tirelessly for the secretary of state's office and then the state Supreme Courts, who in some cases are now having to send back multiple times the redistricting information to to the state legislature so they can get it right and get it fair has been challenging. And it's interesting because a lot of this stuff has happened all at once, right? We've had the pandemic occur. We've had a, a resurgence in a civil rights movement again. And then also now this the electoral challenge. And and it's difficult. I mean, if you look at the state of Arizona and what they there was there were challenges there. You look at what happened in the state of Georgia and there were challenges there. And um, again, when we're living in this kind of social media, constant news 24 seven, there are different opinions of what is right or wrong. But I can tell you as someone who has worked on elections that everyone, I think, does their best to ensure that it is certified and done properly. It seems like the only issue that I can understandably see as a contentious issue is gerrymandering. And even that in itself is kind of interesting to put out there because I'm, as someone who does cover the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and of course gerrymandering originates from Elbridge Gerry, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, certainly I'm trying my best to keep his legacy as positive as possible, but one can't possibly escape the divisiveness of something like gerrymandering, which we've seen a lot over this past year. I I wish again, if I'm going to put on my idealist hat, no matter what, if no matter the party in charge, you're going to get criticism from the other side. Nothing is, we are in a divisive political environment in which these are drawn specific ways for a reason. Will that ever change? I don't know. And again, you hear Many different states across the country right now, the opposite party will do everything to complain about the way that it's drawn. I don't, I would love for it to be a more fair and, you know, unified decision, but I unfortunately don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. I wish it would though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully we can all be united to give Elbert Gary a better name. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, all right, let's shift gears now. And this is something that you touched upon a few times earlier, but I want to get more into, into some of the causes of what we're seeing in our country nowadays, which is the polarization problem. Um, it seems like it's unfortunately ingrained. It's almost like when we see two members on different sides of the aisle and they get into a fight They're like, Oh, you know, nothing we can do. You know, it's just a couple of, couple of people arguing back and forth. But I think in, in, you mentioned the in kind of the information age that we're in with social media and whatnot. What, uh, just starting from the media side of things, how do you think this contemporary media environment is contributing to misrepresentation of one side or the other and how that maybe is contributing overall to Americans not being able to interact the same way as we probably want to in this day and age? Well, we both know with media, the most sensationalized information that's coming out is what's going to have viewers tune in 
or watch or listen. So if there is something, there's a combative argument on congressional floor, that's going to be of interest. That's going to be a, you know, a news clip that people are going to tune, tune in to watch. They don't want to watch Senator Rob Portman from Ohio shaking hands with Joe Manchin from West Virginia because they like each other and they got along on some issue. That that doesn't seem to resonate with people as something that's interesting to watch. And that's sad because I think when you look at even when President Joe Biden served in the Senate, it was known as he was friends with people on both sides of the aisle. It was more congenial. They the upper chamber got along a lot better. And now it seems that there has been uh, over the last couple of years, a new class of certain uh, freshmen, especially that are coming in that are capturing the audiences for the quick news clips, you know, by saying something controversial, doing something controversial. They even had the platform of their decisions to wear a mask or not on the floor that were even picking up news. And I think it's become very combative And we've talked a lot about the kind of lack of decorum or lack of unity in the country. And I think that's something that as we heal during this pandemic and hopefully, you know, seeing the light of of the end of it, that people need to come together more. I, I don't like how we as a nation have become more and more divided. And I don't think just saying or doing something so you can get on the news for five minutes is, is the right way to, to handle your um, platform as a legislator and elected official. And how can state and local governments play a role in uh, healing divisions? And I know that sounds, it might, might sound a little crazy as an idea, but it seems like there's so much tension on the federal level that we often forget that there's that more local level or the uh, more on the ground level of policymaking. Uh, are, are there any things that, you hope to look for in state and local governments and how they can play a role in uh, not only maybe bridging political divides, but maybe just uh, working together, maybe on civics, you know, learning about those same state and local governments and how, how those are important to citizens on the ground. So I'll answer that twofold. I'm an ambassador for a group called the millennial action project known as map And one of the core missions for that group, and they have a a federal arm, but I'm an ambassador on the state and local arm, is to get millennial elected officials, primarily those that are serving in their state legislatures, um, to work together, regardless of their party, on issues that impact directly um, millennial constituencies. So you're having someone from, you know, 25 to 45 working on these issues, whether it's student loan debt. Um, any of the um, ride share or technology up and coming app uh, arena in tech uh, and other in- environmental issues um, that they can kind of find a common ground on, shared through the fact that they're of similar age. Uh, and they've had great success. And they have these state chapters across the country in which millennial elected officials are coming together and like actually getting stuff done and passed out of their legislature, signed by their governors and impacting positively their constituents across the state. And then I think the second answer about uh, what what we could do moving forward or what local elected officials could do moving forward is exactly what I said earlier of 
learning about the other person. When I worked in the Ohio Senate, a lot of the senators, regardless of their party, got along really well. Like truly they did. And it was the fact that they were going out to dinner or lunch with each other, or sometimes they would drive from their a, a neighboring district with one Democrat, one Republican driving together. I mean, we've seen that sometimes with members of Congress, and they'll even end up putting it on social media to show how they get along. And what is their shared interest? Are they both representing a Latino um, district and they are both bilingual when they speak to their constituency? Is it that they're both from an Appalachian area of the country and deal with those specific issues? I think finding the common ground rather than what we're different about is really, really important. And when I worked for uh, the attorney general of Ohio, I was his policy director. And one of the things that he, now the governor, and I actively went out of our ways to do, and I remember every time he would ask this of me, is when I would run a piece of legislation, he wanted a guarantee that I had someone from the opposite party on that bill. And so every time I went forward with something, um, whether it was a domestic violence bill or it was an uh, environmental cleanup bill or so, whatever I went on, I had I had to find someone from the opposite party. And a lot of times I got a lot of people to sign on, but sometimes that wasn't easy. So it was going in and getting to know that person and, and what is their position on this and why does it matter to them or their constituency? It's listening. It's building a relationship and knowing the person that will lead you to success. And that will bring us together. Sounds like a, quite, a, quite a treasure hunt in the Ohio legislature for you, right? <laughs> Yeah, it, at the time, and I'm going to age myself, but at the time it was um, a lot more bi bipartisan. You know, a lot of the state, we are seeing the trend of a lot more state legislatures are shifting, you know, significantly so to one party, just like in California, Democratic um, coasts, it's that way. And a lot of middle America, it's a lot more red. Uh, but when when I was there, it, it was a lot more bipartisan, but still there were challenges that I was faced in order to get these things done. Uh, and I liked having someone from the opposite party on the piece of legislation that sometimes they brought really valuable intel and positions that would make the bill even better, which is important. Having those co-sponsors from the other side, other side, hope that it becomes a bit of a tradition, you know, something that is just kind of passed down, uh, you know, to freshmen at various different legislatures. Now I want to turn to just overall, you know, how how we can get people really involved in staying local governance. I mean, you touched upon that a little bit with um, with your segment about MAP, uh, but in particular, you know, you obviously very very passionate. I truly admire this about you. You're truly passionate about bringing more women into politics. Um, it's something that we've covered before in in our uh, podcast. Um, so, what w what are some things that you know you've you've seen and that that are encouraging but also some things that you want to see a bit different in terms of getting of growing that pie if you like of public service across uh women of different backgrounds and just making making the united states uh, a a better place for uh, for for civic duty and for public service for all kinds of people so i think our best form of government is a representation in which is diverse Right. We need to represent the constituents in which have elected us. So whether that's electing more women, more people from, you know, diverse backgrounds regionally, economically, if that's race, if that's sexual orientation, I'm all for getting more people interested in 
public policy, interested in running for office, interested in testifying or meeting with their legislators. There's so many ways in which you can be impactful in the public policy process, even by not running for office, right? I mentioned earlier, you can go in and testify. You can write letters of support. The local component really gives constituents across the country the ability to get involved in the political process. And I think that that gives a lot of people a platform to be heard on these issues. Uh, but I am I am very passionate about working with with women's groups. I'm very involved in Women in Government, National Foundation of Women Legislators, and then Women in Government Relations, all of which are organizations which really try to work with women to either run for office or on the private sector side has tools for us to support women that are in office and, and to get more people just in general to run. They say with most women, they have to be asked to run rather than like a lot of men, they just decide, yeah, I think I can do this. I think I'd be good for this office. A lot of women need the recruitment in order to do so because it's often balancing a lot of different, a lot of different plates in their hands at once um, with their personal and, and professional life. But it doesn't just have to be women. I'll reiterate that again. The more diverse, if it's a millennial legislator that you know is representing the district of the university that they just graduated from, I don't think that there needs to be one specific recipe of the right way a legislator needs to look or or um, implement policy. It's more about that the diverse representation will make us a better country overall because we're hearing from so many different voices rather than just one. Uh, excellent. Uh, I really, I really commend your efforts and obviously the efforts of of all those people who try to bring more people to public service. I think it's always a great thing. Uh, there's a specific part of your bio that I want to ask you about, and and I guess it's not too surprising since our our program is named for words after a founding father. But there's another founding father who I mentioned in your bio. Um, you were a 2016 James Madison's Montpelier's Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution's Emerging Millennial Fellow. Uh, That's would a you share a little? Yes. Exactly. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that experience or maybe just the takeaway that you got from uh, that experience with Montpelier? And by the way, Anyone who's, uh, who wants to make a great trip to Virginia, I've been to Montpelier. It's a wonderful place. So, uh, yeah, just tell us about how that experience was and uh, maybe what do you think of James Madison? Maybe maybe had a, a better impression after, of him. Yeah. So I think that's a great question, Sherman. And I think you're going to know this. James Madison, you know, 26 years old, was like making all of these, you know, uh, impactful decisions, whether it's the, the writings that he was doing, speeches he was giving and uh, a major, major focus of the program was to attract and um, recruit young individuals, both sides of the aisle. So the program that I was a part of, uh, everyone was under the age of 30. We all ha- held some kind of public policy position. We, there were people there from the Hill, people there from state government. There were lobbyists, nonprofits, PACs, grassroots, we were a mixed bunch, but the common ground that we all shared is that we were young, we were millennials, we were impacting change. And we went through, it was partially educational in that we went through and read a lot of James Madison's papers and saw how he applied his decision-making and and in today's society, how we would look at that with 
you know, current events that are going on and how we would make decisions. But also it, it was a learning experience, um, not only by just touring the property, we stayed there for, for the full week, but it was meeting other historical entities, finding the people that were surrounding him that led him to where he was to become so successful. Uh, and I don't, again, I don't think maybe you and I know this, Sherman, but maybe your listeners don't know just how, how many impactful decisions were made by, by young people, by young founding fathers that, um, that to this day, I, I think have set a precedent for having a voice and speaking for, for a constituency in which um, is often unheard. So it, it was a, an amazing experience. And I would encourage anyone like you have mentioned to go out to the property if you have not, um, and to learn a little bit more about James Madison, because he was, he was a great person and a great resource if you really want to know the history of the country. Wonderful. I, I, he certainly did have a wonderful resume. And uh, for the record, I, I don't think he has had an official resume. It's not like he went on a LinkedIn. It's just like, oh, yeah, let me put it, put, my, put down what I've written, what I've spoken, because probably be the longest LinkedIn profile I've ever seen. Let's kind of tie this all in together. Um, I frequently speak about these values, these particular six values from Washington's farewell address, I mean, from 1796. And out of these six, if there's one or more that you think really stand out, maybe from your experiences or from the things that we've spoken about, uh, what would be, what would that value or set of values be from the six that you, you wish to highlight and, and really tie all of this back together? So I've highlighted this a lot, but the importance of unity. I think as our country heals, we really need to work to listen to each other and to work together to find the common ground, to build the relationship. I am an idealist in that I believe that, but that persona that I've carried on and that North Star that I've had in in my um, work that I've done over the last 15 years has paid off. I've been very successful by forming unity. And I think party politics often divide us. And so as much as possible, I want people to work together from opposite sides of the aisle. I, I know Washington highlighted that, that the more that we emphasize or give power to political parties, the more we will potentially divide each other. And we are seeing that right now. And there's these factions within each other, right? There's factions within both of the parties where their extremists are sometimes the loudest voices, but not, not always the right ones. And so unity is, is very, very important. Obviously, I've spoken about fiscal responsibility. I think being selfless in a lot of ways, listening, being selfless. Washington, as we both know, stepped aside from his office. He could have continued to serve and only served two terms and decided, you know, I'm going to put the country first, and myself second. And I think that in itself is what we, we need to focus on is, is very commendable is being selfless and caring for the greater good. You know, that's more important than all of us in order to make changes. And so uh, he was a remarkable person. I don't think anyone will challenge that. The fact that we still are talking about him today, there's a reason for that. Uh, but a lot of his uh, principles, his foundation, I think are things that I would point a lot of Americans to hopefully so that they can listen and learn uh, from his example, because, you know, he's one of our best presidents for a reason. 
Amen to that. Really appreciate that connection with fiscal responsibility and national unity as two core pillars of our country and of the farewell address. Now I'd like to give you an opportunity to share any advice you have for people, whether people are interested in serving at the state or local level, even the federal level, or anyone who is looking to work for a nonprofit or some other capacity. What can people do to be more active and any closing remarks that you'd like to leave for our audience today? Well, I appreciate that. I go back every year, sometimes twice a year. It's been a little bit less or I've done so remotely during the pandemic, but I go back every year to my graduate program at Ohio University and I speak to students. A lot of up and coming or young um, politicos, if you will, want to immediately go to Capitol Hill and become a chief of staff. And one of the things that I try to advise them on is to be patient one step at a time. Uh, Every door window that I said it open happened to me at the right time for the right reason, because I was working hard. And I speak to them because a lot of students at universities are hearing these really accomplished speakers talk about, I became a CEO after this. But sometimes the most important thing is to hear like what I did after year one, or what I did after year five to become successful, and really getting the the, the tools and the skill set of what to do in your immediate steps. And then Going back to the fact that all politics are local, I think when we see the trajectory of a lot of members of Congress, almost all of them have served in some local capacity first. So you have to build on your resume, whether that's in an elected capacity, starting at school board or city council, becoming a mayor or state legislator, moving up to become a governor or a member of Congress, or if that's on you know, the, the nonprofit or the volunteer or the private sector side in which you're volunteering or you're working in a position, I think one step at a time, building up your goals over time, putting in the time and effort, you're going to learn so much. And then I think also with local government is there's no mandate for a time in which you need to get involved. You can get involved if you're seven years old or 77 years old. There's there's no, there's no nothing stopping you from getting involved in politics. And it can be as much or as little as you want. And that's where state and local is so important because those are really the laboratories for, for thought process and, and, and the starting point, sometimes significantly more impactful than meeting with your federal delegation is meeting with state and local where the action's happening. So I'm passionate about it. I hope others are. I encourage people to get in as, vol- in, as, as involved, involved as you would like. Um, but, but just know that um, local is exciting and uh, your voice will be heard. Excellent. And uh, well, Kristen, as we conclude our episode, I want to thank you so much once again for the time that you spent with us, uh, sharing a little about your experiences. You obviously have an impressive, very, very impressive resume and background. Uh, it's it's really hard. You, you just can't beat experience. You know, you have so much experience in these realms of policymaking, um, and I, I think there's a lot that people can learn from you. And so um, I just want to thank you so much for uh, your time, and I hope that uh, regardless of uh, whichever paths you continue to take in, in policymaking and lobbying, you certainly uh, are serve as a, a big role model, I think, for a lot of future, uh, certainly a lot of, of women who want to get into uh, public service, but I think for for, for anyone in, in general. So uh, thank you so much for, for coming on to our program today. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun, and um, I've loved getting the opportunity to speak with you, Sherman. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll wrap up our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening to episode 90. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kristen Strobel. Make sure to check out some links down in the show notes below to learn more about Kristen's work. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. 